Hi there, House Culture listener. If you enjoy this episode or have enjoyed listening to other episodes in our series, please support and donate to us through the Acast Supporter feature. All donations will help us create the content that you love listening to. You can decide how much you give and there is no regular commitment. So it could be a one-off and every now and then or once every time you listen. It's really up to you. Click on the supporter link in the episode description and with Google or Apple Pay, it will take you less than 30 seconds to make your contribution. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hi everyone, my name's Alan Fitzpatrick and you're listening to my House Culture podcast. House Culture. Hello everybody and welcome to the second episode in this third season of the House Culture podcast, hosted as always by me, the managing editor at House Culture, Matt Rouse been a while since our last chat with Anya Schneider and I hope you can get comfortable with our new monthly release schedule. However, don't get disheartened as we have sourced a fantastic selection of guests for this third season, voices and personalities who span the entirety of the culture of house music. If you're new to the podcast and this is your first time tuning in, first of all, welcome to House Culture. We are a collective of house music fans who have come together through our mutual love of the beat to celebrate the spirit of house music. Come and join us on Instagram at housecultureNet and get connected with fellow party people from across the world. Second of all, make sure you get yourself acquainted with all of the guests from our previous two seasons. There are chats in there with some absolute megastars of the scene, such as Danny Tanaglia, David Morales, Fatboy Slim and Harry Romero, as well as fascinating insights from some of the hardest working people in the business. Honestly, if you don't recognise the name, I guarantee that they still have an interesting story to tell. So let's get on with this next episode, shall we? In this one, we chat to a DJ who's been smashing up dance floors with his commanding style for many years now. He's also an extremely successful producer and a label head as well. It's Alan Fitzpatrick. Over the next hour or so, you'll hear how Alan's early dance music influences continue to have an impact on his work today. I try and keep that element of sort of rave for everything, really. Yeah, I think that's burnt into my process of writing music. How a last-minute cancellation led to his first appearance at one of the most iconic clubs in the world. I still remember my first ever gig at Fabric, and I remember Andy from Fabric calling me and, and just being like, well, you drive up and play instead of Carrie Leckerbridge? And I was like, yeah, sure. So I phoned, phoned my friend and was like, right, I need to get up to Fabric. They want me to play in room two. His approach to keeping a dance floor full of revellers interested. I also want people to come and see me and hear stuff that 
or edits of my own stuff that they can't get. That, that, that maybe they can buy the original, but they can't get a version that I'm playing. Just to keep it fresh, you know? And how a bit of fun for himself ended up becoming a huge crossover hit. I definitely put some 909s over Patrice's original track. That was solely a, um, a, a DJ edit for me that I guess just sort of blew up. I, I basically made that track as a, for me to play like as a closing track or, you know, one of these sort of fun tracks for DJing, really. I hope you enjoy this one. This is Alan Fitzpatrick. House Culture. Hi, Alan. It's great to have you join us on the House Culture podcast today. You're a well-known DJ and producer of some of the biggest dance floor bombs of recent years. You've released material on serious underground labels like Drum Code and remixed icons such as Roshi Murphy and Left Field. However, we always want to start at the beginning and understand how you got to where you are today. You grew up in Southampton. Can you tell us about how you first discovered electronic music there? Yep, Southampton born and bred. But in terms of the dance music side of things, I was more finding dance music going to Bournemouth, actually. Um, I was first kind of introduced to, to clubbing and and all that sort of stuff at a very early age, probably about 15 years old. Um, I actually used to go down to Slinky with my um, uh, cousin and some of his friends. We used to go down there uh, on Fridays. And, you know, back back then, the sort of lineups were quite diverse. You could have, you know, trance DJs in with the house DJs and with techno DJs. It was sort of, you know, quite, quite a mixed bag. So I was sort of first exposed to sort of that sort of stuff back then, really. But I mean, even before that, before I was actually in the nightclubs, um, I was sort of listening to drum and bass and happy hardcore and and sort of jungle and all that sort of stuff from like tape packs, which I used to pick up from a place called Movement Records in Southampton. Mm. You know, before I was sort of old enough to go clubbing, I'd just go and go and sort of, you know, don't sort of get it so much now because obviously streaming and everything else. But back then it was, you pick up a tape pack and that's how you sort of got your insight into the night really. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, you're speaking to me, you know, I had an older brother and my entry into this whole scene was through tape packs, rave flyers, going to raves, drum and bass, happy hardcore, all of that stuff. So yeah, completely get where where your entry was. So I mean, Slinky at that time, there was that real era, I suppose, of um, every town across the country had some kind of almost mini super club in terms of like Slinky, Gatecrasher, Cream, God's Kitchen, all of these places. And they're all playing this kind of trance sound was that really what was turning you on at that point yes for me sort of 1999 was the golden era for that sort of style of music really that um sort of turn of the century trance stuff definitely slinky was a sort of huge huge sort of purveyor of that sort of stuff really that and kind of the hard house stuff at the time which you know with the sort of lisa lashes fergie uh andy farley that sort of sound um it going into the sort of trance stuff yeah that was a massive massive sort of aspect of my sort of cultural background of music it definitely slinky slinky at that time was and there was no better place to be but you're right you sort of one of these sort of cornerstone sort of clubs so up north you have the gate crashers and the god's kitchens and stuff like that and down, down south we had slinky yeah certainly that was the perfect time to be to be a part of all that i think yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And so, what, what, when you were going to Slinky, whatever, were there any particular DJs that were inspiring to you? Ones that you're particularly wanting to follow, or was it just like I'm just here to party? At, at that stage, it was, it was just sort of because it was so diverse. I mean, you could sort of, you know, one one week you could see Carl Cox, and next week you could see 
as I say, one of the sort of hard house DJs, and you've got like Guy Ornadown, Scott Bond, and the guys from Gate Clash are coming down. So it was at that stage, it was just a sort of sponge soaking up everything, really, just listening to all, all sorts of music and, you know, sort of buying all sorts of music. Well, shortly around that time is when I first got my first pair of record decks, sort of 15 years old. Mm-hmm. And again, it was more a case of going into HMV or, or Movement Records at the time and just getting like three free records for a tenor. And it, the, the sort of genres were quite all over the place. I could buy drum and bass and I could buy house and techno and trance and was just kind of soaking it all up really yeah um drum and bass was quite a big factor i mean slinky's second room was a drum and bass room coco shabine mm-hmm. um so i was listening to a lot of drum and bass as well at the time and kind of you know buying a lot of that sort of stuff so in terms of styles it was it was all over the place which um i guess you don't so much get now because you don't really get other than sort of festivals and stuff you don't really get club nights that are all over the place in terms of stylistically and it's all very much focused on a brand now or a style of music or you you don't really get that opportunity to hear quite a wide sort of range of DJs yeah yeah totally it's a bit of a shame now as well and like in some of your work as well you can totally hear that influence in terms of you know the old school break beats in places and things like that uh, you know as well as the tougher sound and it's you know it's great that you brought all of those in I try and keep that element of sort of rave for everything really mm. yeah i think that's it's sort of burnt into my process of writing music <laughs> so i mean you mentioned there that you bought decks at like an early age at that point were you wanting to get gigs playing out or was it just as like a hobby or just to you know impress your mates or whatever what was the factors there uh, at that stage um early 15 16 years old um early 2000s coming into that would was just merely for house parties and playing with mates and well, I think a few a few of a few of my sort of friends at the time we we all ended up getting decks, whether they'd be good ones or bad ones. You know, I think I started with Sound Lab decks and got onto Technics a couple of years later, but it was a social thing. You know, we'd all we'd all buy records, we'd all have a mix at each other's houses, we'd all hang out, you know, in the same way that people would now meet up and play Call of Duty or everything else, we would meet up and just have a mix and, and swap records and play records and, you know, just as a social thing, really. And then I guess the, the, the sort of gig stuff early early gig stuff came from playing small parties of our own things that we put on you know you might have a few people over and stuff and you're sort of performing to your mates basically yeah i mean you mentioned sound labs there my first set of decks with a pair of sound labs i think even then it was like they had little sliders on the front and there were different pitch controls for a 45 and a 33 they were really super rudimentary <laughs> i think if you could you could mix on them you can mix on anything yeah i was about to say that, that that step up that first time you go from those and play on like something with direct drive it's like whoa yeah exactly yeah, yeah the, um, the, the the sound lab ones were sort of a giant elastic band, weren't they? <laughs> totally. So, I mean, um, you know, you, you've done a lot of work as producer and things like that as well. I mean, was there a stage where it's like, okay, I mean, you went to university, you studied music tech at university, right? College, yeah, South Downs College in, in, in um, Portsmouth Way, Waterlooville. Yeah. Yeah, and then I, I, I'd sort of got my first studio loose sort of studio set up on finance really from digital village while i was there and um was sort of building up the basics really sort of pc and little midi controller and started playing around um i actually didn't finish my music tech course because i had a record signed 
um, back in the day. I think it was 2002, I had a record out called uh, Feel the Friction um, with, with me and Dave Robertson at the time. And then we, I was sort of, he, he stuck out of the course. He was there for three years. So I did half the course and was like, do you know what? I've had a record signed. I can do it on my own now. I don't need to be wasting time <laughs> at college. I'm just going to sit at home and make music. So whether that was the right choice or not, I mean, I'm sort of here now. So it, was, it seemed to work. But I think... I think uh, I probably got a bit caught caught up in the fact that oh we've got a record signed and I just assumed I could do it and then, but however what that did give me is the opportunity to rather than be sat in college I was writing music so mm-hmm. um, I guess it paid off yeah yeah and um, yeah I mean so at that point it was like okay you're all in on on just producing and writing and you know just getting as much stuff created and out there in, in the scene yeah I sort of really jumped into the whole production stuff as soon as I had the ability to you know, start sort of figuring out how to put beats together and stuff I think that's always a sort of natural step from the DJing side of it was always to be like okay well how is this music that I'm buying being made? How can I how can I get involved in trying to sort of create something that would make me stand out against other people that can just mix records, basically? Yeah, and I think that's important. That nowadays, well, back 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 then, you 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 could make it as a DJ by only being a DJ. I mean, like you can nowadays. It's very much you need this whole package of you need to be able to write music. You need to be able to um, you know, produce you need some sort of brand awareness with you and everything else um the sort of old school um ethos that you can just be really good at mixing records together is sort of gone now i think yeah technology seems to have kind of solved that as well in that you know back then it was just two bits of vinyl and your own talent in your ear that could be able to do it whereas now it's you know yeah and there's so many more visual now like visual aids on djing now is like makes it very, very much anyone can do it eventually with a bit of practice, you know. But I used to remember back in the day, James Zabila is a friend of mine and obviously from Southampton as, as well. And he was another guy that was up and coming probably a couple of years sort of ahead of me, really, from from where I was at. And I used to always watch him and think, like, technically, he was an absolute wizard and amazing on the on the decks and stuff like that. And there hasn't really been anyone since then, really, that's got that sort of, ability to have just jumped straight to where they are just on technical ability with scratching and looping things up and chopping things around nowadays it's as you say it's you know you've got you've got to have something else yeah i mean uh, you know going back to that time when you were producing stuff initially who were you looking up towards in terms of thinking that's where i want to be or that's really influencing my sound or was it just something that was all just coming from inside yourself yeah i think a lot of the time it's just my um overall sort of passion to want to perform on a bigger stage and, and and perform and and kind of just be a part of it i didn't necessarily have any specific djs that i was looking at thinking i want to do this or i want to do that it was more the kind of culture of you know being stood on the dance floor looking up at a stage lights and everything else in tow and and thinking you know i want to I want to be up there performing. I want to be up there making these these sort of moments and, and creating this atmosphere. Um, and that was the drive, really, more so than a sort of following an individual, maybe. You know, I wasn't sort of one of those people that were following a DJ around the country. It was more of a case of, it was, it was the whole culture. It was the night and it was the experience of clubbing and the experience of DJing and all of that sort of stuff, really. Mm-hmm. Um, it's quite varied in terms of styles because obviously a lot of my friends I came from more of a sort of faster harder sort of background in terms of you know drum and bass and hardcore and techno 
um, and like acid techno, like the whole stay up forever and all that sort of sound. And, you know, some of my other friends were a lot more down the route of house music, Danny Ramplin and and, and then my other friends were trancey. So we, we had this big mixture of, of sounds which would take us to all, di all different clubs and all different events. So it wasn't really a specific pe pe people. It was just the whole culture of it all that I wanted to be a part of and wanted to make a career out of, mm -hmm. you know, playing music. Yeah. Um, can you remember hearing one of your productions for the first time, whether it was, how, how did that come about like in a club environment? Was it something that maybe you played yourself or maybe you heard a DJ play it? Did you know it was coming? Like, just take us through that. Yeah, I mean, there's, I guess um, there's a few different sort of aspects of, of, of when I was hearing stuff played out. Like when I used to write sort of more hard house techno, faster techno stuff with, Dave Robertson under the name the Test Tube Babies back in the day. Um, we I didn't get hear a huge amount. We used to play a lot of our stuff out ourselves, but we would hear some of those sort of DJs from back then playing stuff like Lisa Lashes and Andy Farley and, and people like that. Um, it was a big sort of um, inspiration for me was like Tony DeVee. So mm -hmm. I used to sort of go and, you know, um, wasn't lucky enough to pass away just before the sort of age I was of going clubbing really. But like, certainly his global underground cds and 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 the sort of the sort of trail of inspiration that he left behind for other djs maybe want to kind of investigate that side of things um but but yeah so i didn't hear a lot of my early stuff played out by people but then i do remember going to sort of sonar um in i guess it was 2006 2007 mm -hmm. um and hearing a demo that i'd given dubfire and he played that out um, at Sonar, which is wicked. Um, and that was quite sort of early on in terms of me doing stuff as Alan Fitzpatrick again, as opposed to writing with other people um, mm -hmm. as like collaborative stuff. Um, but that was out of nowhere, you know, we just, we obviously went and see, saw Dubfire play. He was on the bill and we all know we'd sent, I'd sent him some music. So it was quite a surprise. Didn't have any, we didn't sort of tip, tip us off that it was going to be played or anything. So it was quite a nice surprise. <laughs> But yeah, that's another one of those moments where you just think, okay, well, if somebody playing it out, it's obviously good enough, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, do you still get that same buzz now if you if you hear someone play something of yours and it's unexpected, or you just hear one of your tracks somewhere? It's it's never. Um, I don't think it's anything that ever leaves. Really, I think I still get. You know, it's still cool when you're cooking dinner on a on a whatever night it may be, and then you something comes on Radio One. You know, it's like that's always still a good feeling. Mm. Um, I don't mean that I'll ever tire, really. It's nice to sort of just experience that, I think. Um, what, what I do, what you sort of lack a little bit of when you when you get to a certain level with touring and DJing and, and success, is you, you don't generally hear a lot of other people play so much mm -hmm. because you're always on the road yourself or you're in and out or you're, you know, you're performing yourself. But certainly the whole radio stuff's always cool because, you know, whenever you sort of hear whether it be Pete Tong or Andy Mack or, some, or Danny Howard or someone playing stuff off, off the radio or any of the Radio 6 guys and it's just a buzz. Yeah, it's just, um, that, that, that never gets old. Yeah, and um, so I want to talk about Fabric as well because you have a long-standing relationship with that club and it's an iconic institution, obviously, that was recently, you know, well, I say recently, a few years ago was under threat and has been saved and whatever. I mean, I did read somewhere that you went there as a punter quite a bit when you moved on from Bournemouth, South Coast to, to London. Yeah, we used to go up to Fabric a lot. Yeah, you were going there as a punter and then obviously started playing there. What was, what was that 
like at that moment where it's like, okay, I've gone from a clubber to a professional and I'm, I'm now the other side of the, the booth? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a bit of a mad one, really, because I remember I still remember my first ever gig at Fabric. I was, um, obviously, as I say, yeah, going there as a punter quite a lot, pretty heavily, actually. We'd always get in the car and drive up there, whether we were seeing Richie Horton and Vidalobos for sort of 12 hours in room one or whether we were going up to see... Um, to the Wiggle Nights with Terry Francis, Nathan Coles, and you know, obviously, all, all through all of this this time, I'm still still sort of DJing at home and still still playing records. So it was, it was kind of that when that transition happened from going to sort of play at Fabric. I remember it was I think it was the 18th of December. I remember I don't can't remember the year, but I remember it's because it uh, really really snowy. It was like we we couldn't have flights coming into the country. Mm-hmm. Might have been an Ashcale, possibly somewhere around there. Okay. But Carrie Leckerberg was supposed to be playing at Fabric, and I remember Andy from Fabric calling me and and obviously and just being like, right, we you know we need someone to come and cover this slot because this flight's not coming in, and you know will you drive up? Will you drive up and play and stand in, um, and, and play instead of Carrie Leckerberg? And I was. Like, yeah, sure. So I phoned, phoned my friend and was like, right, I need to get up to Fabric. They want me to play in room two. Oh, my God. And the drive to Fabric from my house generally should be about an hour and a half, maybe an hour and 30, 40 minutes, maybe. It took about six hours <laughs> because the um, snow and the roads were so bad that you were kind of weaving in and out of cars on the motorway and... It was it was insane. It was like you shouldn't be going leaving the house, but it, I remember it took me that long to get up, to get there, and sort of pulled up outside the club about five minutes before I was supposed to start, and rushed through, started playing, and yeah, it was nuts. And so that one took a bit of a while to sink in because it was such a whirlwind to get and do that show. Mm-hmm. Um, and but you know, I still to this day think that was me and Andy are really good friends now. We actually work together on. I've got a, I've got a management company which Andy looks after some of the artists on that, which is great. But mm-hmm. yeah, I remember back then. I think that went a long way that I put that effort in to, to get to that to that show and do <laughs> and do that. Gig. Um, and then my and I was obviously wasn't on the fly or anything. It was because it was a stand-in sort of thing. And then I think two two or three weeks later was my actual debut at the club where I was on the flyer and stuff and that was you know thank goodness you made it with that five minutes to spare <laughs> yeah, exactly yeah 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 you never want to be late for that sort of show like that but no. it was it was a mental one it was like you shouldn't yeah shouldn't, I mean it's just sort of one of those journeys where it was like don't don't leave your house and, and, unless you really have to and I, I, to me I, I, had to, I had to get there <laughs> I mean, when you when you approach a gig and when you arrive at a gig like that, what is your preference? Do you you know is that a preference where you just turn up super like five minutes before, just get in like bang? That's what I want to do with no kind of view on what I'm going to do, or is it a case of like no, I like to stalk around a bit, have a view of what the crowd's doing? You know, how do you approach a set in that way? I am um, generally have always kind of preferred to just get in get on and get playing really I've always sort of done that and even even to, to now you know I might get somewhere sort of an hour or 40 minutes before have a beer and then go and get settled and to, to play but I'm, I've not really been one for sort of getting too early scoping things out and almost letting myself overthink it I just mm-hmm. sort of try and arrive I know what I'm going to do I don't know the tracks specifically but I will have a playlist of let's say I play 40 tracks in a two-hour set, I might have a playlist of 150 tracks, but mm-hmm. I know that somewhere in there I'll figure it out on the night. But I don't generally go in too, too prepared and to to overthink it too much. I just sort of 
feel it out when, when I'm playing sort of thing, really. I think the, the bigger shows, it's easy to just turn up and do your thing. It's the smaller ones are the ones that can, can when, you, when you feel a little bit more pressured, maybe. Um, the bigger shows are easy. Oh, really? Yeah, the smaller ones, you've got a smaller crowd. You, you're, you always feel a little bit more, a bit more intimate. People are a bit more, you know, you know, the attention's on you a bit more. But yeah. um, again, the rules apply. Just sort of go in and make it happen sort of thing. The smaller ones, it's always the heads that end up at the, they're like staring at you on the decks as well. It's always a bit intimidating. Yeah, you can't you can't get away from, um, you can almost, listen, you can almost, you know, you can look at every single person as opposed to just a sea of people and you're like, okay. Um, and where are you? Where do you sit on like playing your own material and road testing stuff when you're playing out and things like that? Do you like to work in the studio whereas you finalise things or do you want to always tweak stuff based on reactions and things like that yeah i mean generally i i, I will tweak stuff from playing it out um it's, it's never major it's never sort of it's only usually for me things kind of levels of stuff maybe hi-hats need to be loud and maybe bass comes into heavy and it's, it's more more sort of tweaking stuff in the mix as opposed to making big changes Gem- generally that's the best way i've really struggled with that in the, over this period because they're, they're the sort of key things that i would normally check before allowing a track to be signed or it to be going out whereas now i mean we don't know yet but obviously there's been a year's worth of music that i've released over this period which um when, when i play at a festival or a club i might go actually that sound should be loud <laughs> Too late, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you do. Yes, to be honest, it goes goes to mastering engineers, and it, you know, I, I've got a good ear. I've made, been making music long enough that I will know. But there are, it, it's probably stuff that 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 I would know that other people may not necessarily pick up on just from my own sort of sonic set of way I want it to sound. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I do. I play. I, I do sort of test stuff a lot when I'm playing it out, and I do do my best to sort of play a lot of my own new stuff and i also want people to come and see me and hear stuff that or edits of my own stuff that they can't get that, that, that they, maybe they can buy the original but they can't get a version that i'm playing just keep it fresh you know? here's a cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
Yeah, I mean, it's interesting you mentioned about not being able to see the reaction in a club during this period. We did an interview, our last episode was with Anya Schneider, and she was talking about how it's just her and her husband locked in a kitchen in a flat in Berlin, just listening to stuff and thinking, oh, is this all right? Is this okay? Yeah, exactly. It's, it's the whole dynamic's totally, totally changed. I mean, yeah, I've done a few streams, some, some from home and some sort of locational stuff. Luckily, the locational stuff, you can still sort of, Play at, play at quite a decent volume more so than you can in, in your home but again it's like it's still very hard to sort of gauge whether without anyone actually in front of you reacting to that track whether that's right or wrong but yeah it's a funny one yeah and um you, you mentioned also about edits and special edits and things like that that you'd play and you know people can't get elsewhere is that how the patrice russian haven't you heard uh release that you did what, tell us about that that was solely a um a, a dj edit for me that i guess just sort of blew up i, I basically made that track as uh, for me to play like as a closing track or you know one of these sort of fun tracks for dj move really um, and then I, you know, after I was playing it for a, a few weeks, I decided to give it to the promo company to send out to wider DJs and see if anyone else was interested in playing it. And then off the back of that, it was sort of the reaction sort of went mental. And then FFRR had contacted me and were like, let's 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 put it out. So that was I had no intention of ever releasing that record. It just it just so, so it just so happened that people wanted it, so we ended up doing it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I, I, a lot of a lot of my music. The reason I play sort of edits and, and, and changed versions to the ones that are available is more so the fact that I tend to feel that once I've made a track and I've played it and it's then been released, then it's not mine anymore. It's the public. I generally give that one to the public, and I'm like, okay. So if I'm going to play another version of it or something, then I'll, I'll do something that's try and make it a bit special. Um, but you, people are always quite funny with all that sort of stuff because what's what's new to me is really new to other people, you know. So, for example, I might have really once once a track comes out, some people are sometimes saying to me after a DJ set, "Oh, you didn't play this, and you didn't play that, and you didn't play that," and I'm like, "Yeah, true, I didn't play those three tracks actually, but that's because I'm playing the ones that you will soon be asking for at some other point because I'm ahead of myself, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So for me, me to do a DJ set and not play a few of my big tunes is sometimes not a big thing for me, but it, obviously you forget that your punters are coming to see you play those some of those tracks, but ultimately you'll control, you also got to push the next thing that you're making, you know? So if you never play the new stuff, you never get to, people never get to hear it. So it's quite a difficult one. Yeah, and you don't want to be that person that turns up and be like, everyone's like just ticking off, oh, he's played this now, he's played that now. You know, that expectation of like, oh, he's going to play these tracks, oh, and he's played them, and there's nothing new or yeah. diverse about it. If you, do, if you can do, if you can drop a few in, in a creative or a different way that people haven't heard, they generally are like, they're, you know, they're, they're fulfilled to a degree because they've heard that track, but albeit it's presented in a different way. Mm. It keeps it interesting, you know. It just keeps it keeps it good. And, and 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 you know, for the for the fact that that what those people in the crowd wanted to hear that one particular track, I may have heard it sort of sixteen hundred times in the last <laughs> however many <laughs> months. So you sort of you need to sometimes keep it fresh. Yeah, yeah, for you for yourself as well. Yeah, I mean, I think that is another thing that's going to be quite interested in the dynamic of when things go back to normal is that there are countless amounts of tracks that deserve club play that Mm -hmm. haven't had that and have probably come out 
um, during this period. So what 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 do we do? Do we do we do we sort of draw a line under that and go right? Okay, so the clubs are opening. For argument's sake, let's say July that we've got some events going on. Are we playing music from July onwards, or do we go right? Okay, well actually, from the previous, we've got so much music that we should be pushing all the stuff that didn't get that opportunity before going into the new stuff. You know, for one, certainly playing some some tracks that I've made or that I've released or that I've put out on my label that didn't get the limelight because it was too you know come out during the pandemic yeah yeah i mean yeah it's a really interesting point i was thinking about this the other day like when parties do start happening again are some sets going to be almost like it's just going to be a few like classics in inverted commas because people are so familiar with them from the past like 18 months maybe where it would be like it's real just want to hear some familiarity on a big system i think yeah i think there'll be a degree of um you know not needing to sort of push the new stuff as much because people ultimately are going to want to have those feel-good moments and stuff that they are familiar with mm-hmm. so yeah i mean there's there's definitely gonna be a lot of music that um we're going to sort of give a bit of a resurgence to that we've maybe put out over the last year that has, yeah, didn't get that opportunity yeah yeah um as well as, well as a few a few classics certainly <laughs> yeah i mean there's certainly some tracks over the past like year or whatever that all, all i've done is just, i've just heard it in my house <laughs> yeah I know. A, lot of, a lot of tracks that people have got um almost no no relationship with in in a, in a live environment but they have when they've been just at home yeah just, um, all this music's just a blur of home yeah, yeah i think as well people are starting to now see that you know that sort of disconnect of relationship between when you've remember a track from hearing it in a club to sort of just having it at home it's very different that that sort of divide is is even more so sort of obvious now where the clubs have been closed for that long that Mm. there's certain tracks that people just have no relationship with in a nightclub because it just didn't exist for them you know yeah you would hope that when you do hear it in a club that will change that memory of it for you yeah yeah 100 percent. you know you mentioned your label we are you know we are the brave um you know you've set that up it stretches across releases you've got a weekly radio show i mean what was your ambition for that label when you set it up and and what did you use it to generate your own opportunities for i mean when i originally set up brave it was selfishly to sort of get my own music out there and not have to wait for record labels that wanted to sign my music or had my music to slot into their schedules really which is one thing you just have to deal with you know Mm -hmm. it's one of those things but I was on a I think as well I got to a stage where I was like um you know the music was sort of successful enough for me to take it myself and do my own thing with it really and you know I was playing for a lot of brands and I still do for sort of drum code and, and stuff like that um and then I just wanted to sort of think to myself, okay, what's my what's my sort of story? What's my brand? What's my legacy at the end of this? Like, do what if if I sort of stayed without having my own label and doing what I'm doing? Like, what what do I have to sort of push myself? You know, so I think the brave kind of was launched one for the fact that I wanted to push my own music, but two, I wanted to be able to have some sort of brand legacy and build something myself for me and my residents and other people and you know and we've sort of done that now with the you know the last last sort of coming up to the year anniversary of the last brave show which is we sold out warehouse project in manchester and that was a great party it was like the end of 
February last year. So we're yeah. approaching that year anniversary now, which is bonkers. But, um, you know, the label's been going, we're in, in, in the fifth year now and lots of great artists, loads of great music. And we've been doing shows, have been getting bigger and better, uh, you know, up until pre-pandemic sort of thing. So the goals, the goals are certainly being met. Um, and I do think now we're in a position where we've had time to, without the sort of live stuff, re- reflect on the, the music and really push. We've had nothing else to do other than push that new music because there's no there's no shows in the way or there's no other sort of distractions. So we've really been able to sort of launch two-footed into making sure that the music we're putting out has been quality and um, you know, that we're still giving people something to sort of get excited about. Um, so that's been pretty cool. We've also got another a little sub-label Apex, which is kind of a bit more kind of left-field, electronica sort of sounding stuff, which has been quite nice during this period as well, because a lot of people have turned to maybe listen. Yeah, I think people have stopped to a degree listening to dance music and put put Radiohead back on and, and sort of sat back and wondered what's going on in the world. So we've been had an opportunity to push that sub-label a little bit more as well, which is a bit more of an eclectic, chill-out, ambient, electronica kind of taste. So, yeah, it's been, it's been quite good. Yeah, and I think during this period as well it's maybe afforded people and artists and whatever to to maybe just experiment and diversify their sound a bit more and you know be like okay well i'm not going to get this out in a club and play it out tomorrow or next week i want to create you know this super chilled electronica shimmering sounding track or whatever you know and just kind of scratch that itch it helps to i think it takes the pressure off when you're writing music especially as a as a sort of producer when you know you're this this may or may not be ever written for, for a club, you know, mm-hmm. it's like if it's streaming and radio it also creates the aspect of you can start working with people that you may never have thought you'd ever be writing music with because you're not, you're not having to slot that track into a DJ set when you're performing live, you know? Mm-hmm. So the opportunities open up a little bit. I think. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're talking about um, opportunities and collaborating. Um, I mean, your next release is a collaboration with your 10-year-old son, is that right? Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, that's pretty bonkers, even saying it, it's weird, isn't it? But, um, look, <laughs> another thing weird as well is kind of, we've been, the kids have been home, with me and my wife, um, you know, we've been homeschooling and same as a lot of other people in the same situation, it's like trying to sort of keep the kids engaged in, in some way of, creativeness you know they've lot they're not seeing their friends they're not they're not at school they're not socially active with people where they should be at that age so i had an opportunity my son on his ipad was on garage band a lot and making little tunes and you know mucking around whether he's making something that sounds like it's from the 80s or something that's rock or whatever he made this little loop and I, I sort of had listened to it and was like that's pretty cool so i brought him in the studio and we sort of you know we we resampled it and, and put it together and then he was mucking around on the drum machines and stuff. And it's just a little nice creative thing that came out of it, which for me was exciting because I never normally get to keep them engaged enough in the studio. They've come in and seen me hitting buttons and, you know, they like the flashing lights and they can see what's going on, but they're not really that bothered, I suppose. But I did to sort of where they weren't doing anything else to sort of capture him and say, okay, well, come and come and let, let's, let's have a play and see what happens. So it's quite exciting. <laughs> Yeah, that's really exciting. It's great that it's called Take Control, isn't it? Yeah. Coming out on the 19th of March, is that right? That's right, yeah. yeah. Cool. And yeah, you've even got his name 
on the artist's release. Yeah, yeah. I love it. So I think it's going to be quite strange for him when he goes to go back to school, we can sort of say, look, I've had a track on Spotify and his name will, will be on there, yeah, um, which is, is bonkers. However, um, I just think that's there's nothing more creative than... You know, or using wise time wisely than doing something like fun like that. It's, it's been it's been good for him, I think. It's been, yeah. it's been interesting. Didn't say how soon the uh, follow up will be, but uh, I, that was a fun process putting it together anyway. So <laughs> yeah, I mean, when when I sort of told him that we'll we'll put it out and yet yeah, it will be on Spotify and it will be on YouTube and it will be available for people to stream and buy, he was kind of a bit blown away. So it's quite exciting to see. And at least it, when he does eventually go back to school. Um, just a nice little, nice little project for him to be proud of, you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You'll have to sneak him into a club and then, um, like, get it played. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'll <laughs> definitely get some footage anyway. Obviously, that's a whole new opportunity that's kind of opened up during this lockdown period, and you know, we've kind of talked about how new things arise from that. I mean, what are your thoughts like once the scene does get? back up and running um and you know we've talked about live streaming and we've talked about um you know tracks that might have been created during lockdown that might not necessarily got the airplay they deserved i mean what do you think the scene's going to be like in terms of major clubs reopening festivals reopening and live streams and it all kind of working together do you feel like there's a new future with the live streaming or do you think that's just a symptom of what's happening now um it's hard to say really i, I think i think the um Firstly, I think in terms of venues opening up again and things returning to effectively what we would say is normal, um, we should experience, I'm pretty confident we'll experience a huge boom mm. um, based on the fact that people have been oppressed, people want to go out, people want to party, people want to see their friends, people want to see the DJs they've not seen for ages, the bands, the comedians, the, the, you know, anything kind of live. So I do think there will be a period of that kind of blowing up and people being very excited. I think promoters must be sort of happy to rub their hands together knowing that things that are going to go on sale should sell out relatively quickly because people mm-hmm. are excited. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and so be it, and so they should. I mean, in, in the same way, you know, I don't get to see a lot of people perform because I'm, well, I, you know, was touring yourself, but I, I will be certainly trying to get on the other side of the, the decks and, and experience it as a punter, even at festivals and everything else, because I've really missed it. I've really missed the whole, I felt that sometimes disconnected with why I'm doing what I do, because the, the main aspects of music um, creation and performance, it's been taken away. So I kind of have had periods where you think, okay, what, why am I into this? Why, why am I making music and why am I DJing? So with that, that love, we want to re- rekindle and go and, experience it again so i do think that'll boom um I'd, I'd like to think some of the streaming stuff would would continue i think when people are touring again quite heavily that the, the sort of aspect of that might wear off a little bit mm-hmm. um but i do think there's some some good things to come out of it in terms of connecting with people all over the world that maybe can't get to shows that you're doing and letting them hear what to a degree what that performance is like you know that sort of you know, Defected have done it quite well for this whole thing with the virtual festivals and stuff like that. I think a lot of that's quite cool because there are parts of the the world that aren't going to be experiencing that in a live sense, which, you know, that, that does open that up. Um, but, yeah, I mean, no, it's, it's such a tough one. What It's just gauging what, what, what people are going to be like when things go back to normal. I mean, have we, have we created this 
extra pandemic of mental health at the end of all this where people are kind of you know, we you go and hug someone and say how's it going, and you know, do people freeze and go, oh yeah. god, you know, it's like who knows, it's really weird. But I do think from just from fo- focus on the music aspects of it, there's there will be a boom um, on the clubbing side of it and the event side, I think. But yeah, I'd like to think some of the streaming stuff will will continue. Yeah. Um, I haven't done a great deal on it, so um, I, someone like Carl Cox, for example, who's been huge on the streaming stuff and has done i guess he must be up to, without me looking he must be on about 50 or 60 shows now he's done every week and he's gone every, every genre and and it's had a great time doing it that's been lovely to see but um you know so stuff like that i think will carry on because it's it's almost ingrained in some now i've done it for so long but mm. yeah we'll see we'll see yeah, and how do you think you're going to approach it? I mean, like you said, there's going to be a boom and there's obviously going to be a lot of expectation on artists being available and making themselves available. You know, in my mind, it could be something like there's going to be, a, like the live streams and like you say, Carl Cox as well, there's going to be some kind of party going on every day of the week for at least yeah. a good few months. I mean, how how are you going to approach that? Are you going to be like, okay, I'm available and I'm just going to do it all because I've missed it all so much? Or is it going to be like, actually, I'm just going to take this at my own pace? Yeah, I think, um, I think you definitely need to be, be, be sensible with it. If there's anything that's come out of this whole thing for me, it's probably been that I, I worked too hard and I toured too hard before all this because I was less... I was definitely wouldn't have admitted it at the time because I probably wouldn't have even known at the time, but I was probably less creative, overworked, overtired and underrested and, 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 and all the sort of things that go with touring heavily because I was still making music and music was still coming out. But, you know, so at that time, if you just said to me in 2019, do, do you think you're overworked? I'd have said, no, no, I'm ready to go. And I'd have been carrying on doing 14 shows a month or whatever, but actually, when someone has, has, has just stopped you, stopped you in your tracks and taken everything away from in terms of touring and, and everything else. After that initial couple of months shock of like, whoa, something, the carpet's been pulled away from under your feet. You do realise that you're probably over overworking and, uh, you know, it wasn't, it started to not be the music industry and just become this, the touring industry. You know, there wasn't mm-hmm. a lot of creativity happening. It was just like, just shows, 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 and shows, and you know, not a lot of anything else. Whereas now everyone's reset. I think we should, in theory, come back and be picking the good shows to be doing rather than just going and doing loads and loads of shows and getting completely burnt out. So for me, it's definitely going to make me question do I need to be doing that many or do I need to be sort of strategically picking the shows to be doing? You know? mm-hmm. And are there any particular places where it's like, I can't wait to get back in there again, or I can't wait to go there again? Today? Yeah, so I'd like to get back to Berlin and do more. Um, we have the brave Watergate shows. They're always amazing. I really miss Argentina um, playing out there. Um, everywhere in the UK is always, always one of my, one of my sort of big highlights of the year. So um, especially, you know, getting playing back in London, getting back up to Manchester and Liverpool, getting to Ireland and uh, all over Ireland, not specific cities. I've got a huge following in Ireland. Um, so getting to go back over there and and see all those people and play shows again, Scotland. and um, Yeah, I mean, it's so hard because there's so many places that are amazing, but I just think, yeah, as soon as you get the opportunity to go and, and just experience it with fans again is going to be a great thing. Yeah, definitely, definitely. You know, let's move on to um, the Spotify playlist track. So 
We always get our guests to pick five tracks for our perfect playlist. Um, and every guest has submitted something for for this playlist. It's it's huge now. It's you know hours and hours and hours long. And there's some real <laughs> some real great stuff in there. Some real random stuff in there. But it's all good and all been chosen by you know some great characters. So you've been really good in giving us um, your choices ahead of this. We'll start from the top, which was um, the catalyst a track that first got you into uh, dance music. And you've chosen. Do you want me to remind you, or do you remember? Yeah, you remind me of them all. <laughs> Don't worry. You've chosen Joey Beltram, Energy Flash. Yeah. Can you just give us like a, a yeah background on your experience with that track, that menacing, brooding, rolling track that it is? Yeah. Just just one of the um, one of the first records that I managed to pick up as a sort of a rare record at the time. You know, I mean, my 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 copy of Energy Flash is. It looks like the dog's been at it, you know, it's completely and utterly tatty now. But um yeah, just just a sort of seminal record for for, for techno and, and for early nineties really. And um, you know, I've, I've recently been working in the studio and you know, re re sort of kindling with some of those old methods of less is more and that's just one of those tracks I think which will go down in history as an absolute classic and, and and not not really trying to overdo it and take itself too seriously you know it's just it is what it is oh i've i've met a remix joey years and years and years ago actually but i i imagine when he made that track at the time i think it was 91 um he would have you know be so proud of the fact that it is what it is still now yeah. so it's just one of those records really yeah, and like you say, less is totally more with that. Yeah, 100%. Um, I mean, your floor filler um, you've chosen is floor plan, um, Robert Hood's uh, Never Grow Old. Yeah. It's like gospel techno. It's just a genre I've never heard put together before. It's amazing. Right, that's one of those records again where, I mean, like, you know, playing in Bergheim and stuff like that a lot back in the days. Um, when when this record came out and hearing like Ben Clock, Marcel Detman and everyone else sort of playing that track in, in, in that sort of setting was was wicked. You know, you didn't really get a lot of Aretha Franklin vocals over over techno, but um, it, it's just when it goes off and that that organ stab. If you drop it now, you know, it's just, we were just talking, weren't we, earlier about like certain tracks that people want to play when the clubs start to open again. I think this is certainly a, a piece of music that will make people fist pump and, and, and smile again. So. Yeah, it's one of those. Definitely a floor filler. Yeah, yeah, and almost yeah. I can hear the influence of that across something like your Patrice Russian track that you fused together in that way. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, I definitely put some nine oh nines over over Patrice's original <laughs> track and tried to give it a bit of that that, that vibe. Certainly. Yeah, and um, Sunsetter, you've chosen um, Destiny by Zero Seven. Yeah, but again, this is another track that um, I sort of have a bigger sort of affiliation with in terms of being being younger and, and, and at after parties and, and, and sort of, you know, the, the chill moments. Mm-hmm. So that's just, it's just got, I've got that place for me. And I think if I was sat on the rocks outside Mambo and the sun was setting now, that, that's a track that I'd love to be hearing. Yeah, there's a wicked there's a wicked Fotec remix of that as well, which I still absolutely love. Yeah, great. And yeah, well, I mean, Tearjerker, you've chosen just an incredible piece of music, which is Prince's purple rain what what does that track do to you apart from fill you with emotion yeah i mean i'm a huge prince fan i've got two prince portraits on my 
on my leg. I've got tattoos of Prince and, and David Bowie and other, other people that are inspirational to me. But yeah, that that track is just it, it, all, all round incredible, really. I remember seeing Prince perform it in 2007 at the O2 when I saw him there. But um, yeah, it's just one of them great pieces of music, really. Um, it's with the un, the unedited version, and it's about 11 minutes long, and it's just zoning out on the on the sort of guitar solos and stuff. But yeah, it's just mm. just just one of them. Um, another, another person that sort of left us too soon, really, I think. Yeah. Um, right. And yeah, mass, massive inspiration of, of someone that could just push boundaries and, and do what you do what you wanted and, and people followed, you know. Yeah. And well, a last tune. Um, I mean, oh, yeah, it's just CJ Bolland. Um, I can never pronounce this. Is it Carmagoo? Carmagee? Car- yeah, Camarag, or I always get it wrong myself. But yeah, another 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 RNS classic. Just mm. it's just those those sort of stabs when that comes. Just a great last track, really. Yeah. Um, and again, another another one that I you know looking forward to sort of dancing around and playing playing again. CJ Bonner's done some absolute classic tunes, and this yeah. one of my favourite ones. So we always ask one final question, which is. Um, we are house culture and you are part of the scene and the culture of the scene, uh, DJ and producer and, and, you know, label owner and all of these things. What, what does the culture of the scene mean to you? And, you know, what has it brought you in your, in your life? Just try and encapsulate that. Um, everything really. I can't, I can't imagine doing anything else. Um, as I say, from an early age, right through to now, it's just been instilled in me and, you know, every, everywhere in, in my, my home is, you know, memorabilia of our culture and just something that I'm sort of all engaged with, really. And I, I'm very thankful for it and 100% have really missed being in touch with people throughout this period. So I really do hope that we can get back to it as soon as possible and get, you know, doing this back to the sort of doing the things we love and performing and and meeting strangers and sharing the same experiences with people that you've never met, you know. Hmm. that's a great thought to finish on i think so that's awesome appreciate it take it easy i'll see you soon house culture thank you alan i hope you guys enjoyed that chat wasn't it great to hear about his forthcoming collaboration with his 10 year old son that track is released on the 19th of march and it's called take control i highly recommend checking it out I also can't wait to hear what else Alan has in store for the dance floor when we all return. I think he made a real interesting point there about just how upfront the music being played out will be when things return to normal and whether DJs will be able to give a second life to tracks that were released during the pandemic. However, before that happens, why not visit Alan's own SoundCloud page where you can tune in to his weekly We Are The Brave radio show that features upfront guest mixes from a whole host of different DJs. And once you're done there, why not head over to Spotify and search for the House Culture Perfect Playlist, where you'll find not only those classic tracks that Alan and I talked about, but submissions from every single one of our previous podcast guests. It's an epic selection that covers all aspects of dance music. All you need to do is open up your Spotify player, search for House Culture Perfect Playlist, hit shuffle and turn it up loud. Once that's soundtracking your day, please support this podcast by loving, liking, tweeting, sharing, by leaving us a rating or a review on Apple. This is super important. will help us to continue to create these episodes that you love listening to. If you say something nice, 
could get you a shout out on a future one as well. This time around, I'm shouting out to Dan and Emma Greenway, who got in touch on Instagram to say that they think the House Culture podcast is brilliant and that they particularly enjoyed the incredible stories from Danny Clockwork and John Trencher. Thanks for those kind words, guys. I hope we can continue to provide more incredible stories as we move through our third season. And if you don't want to miss out on those future episodes as well as get a daily dose of club culture, make sure you hit up our Instagram feed at housecultureNet or follow the hashtag TrueHouseCulture. And finally, if you want to reach out to me, Matt Rouse, you can do it directly on Instagram at DJMattRouse. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and see you next time. House Culture. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.